We pray this evening that he is your confidence, that we have a place that we can trust, a person that we can trust, that will take us by the hand and lead us through whatever it is that we may be facing. And so we have confidence in the person of Christ who came and died on that cross and rose again and made a way for us. And we have reason to celebrate tonight. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Some of you are like, I didn't even know there was a Bible book named that. Lamentations chapter 3, probably found in the sticky pages of your Bible right after the Psalms there. And uh, right by Jeremiah the prophet, Lamentations chapter 3, page 688. If you don't have a Bible, there's one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 688, we'd love for you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you. Uh, We're going to walk right through a text. As you turn there, uh, we kick off our summer a semester for our communities. We believe that life change happens best in community. We're a large church, but we're a family. And uh, we believe that the best way we can show that is by being involved in groups. And we have all sorts of groups this summer. Obviously, winter and fall tend to be our busy times where tons of people, thousands of people actually are in groups. But the summer's a great time to get connected with new people. We have some great opportunities, some great groups that are planned for this summer. And we hope that you'll take a step. One of our core values is connected in community. One of our five key uh, initiatives that we want every attendee to be a part of is to be connected in community. We say there are five things that we ask of you, that you'll come faithfully, that you'll serve uh, in a great way, that you'll serve regularly, that you'll connect in community, that you'll give expectantly, and that you'll share the gospel boldly. Those five things are what make up what discipleship looks like here at Crossroads. And so we hope you'll connect in community with us. There are catalogs at the center of the lobby as you leave. Grab those, sign up, be a part of our summer semester. We're excited about these groups that are planned. It's going to be a fantastic time. Lamentations chapter 3. We're in a series that we have called Empty. We're, t- we're talking about the, really the impact of the empty grave, the resurrection of Jesus into our lives, and things that tend to make us empty in our lives today. Last week we looked at a, a really difficult topic of, uh, of the frantic pace of living, the, the busyness of life, and we talked about how important it is that we slow down and reflect on who God is, that many of us are un- unhealthy, many of us experience emptiness because we're running too fast. And God calls us to Sabbath, calls us to to stop, to reflect, to remember what he's done for us. Now as we journey on through this series, we're going to look over the next few weeks at some really deep topics. I want to share with you my hope and and the teaching team as we plan this, our hope. Our, Our hope during this sermon series is for us to see that the church is God's hospital. You know, we come in... This evening, we come in every weekend, and, and, and we walk with limps. None of us have it all together. None of us are a picture-perfect uh, look of what Christianity looks like, right? Uh, we have issues. We have brokenness. We have struggles. We have strife. We have situations that overwhelm us. And, and so the church really acts as a hospital. By the way, this is what Jesus did when he came on earth, right? As a ministry, he healed people and connected people and, and helped people along, and And so you and I, as we walk in here, we have issues and situations and that this is a safe place. You know, in the Gospels, many turned from the invitation. They spurned the invitation because they thought that they were fine as they were. And yet Jesus invited them. Jesus invited them in, many who were broken. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a safe place. We want to be a hospital for people struggling, a hospital for people walking with a limp in life not having it all together, and yet saying it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay, right? That we're constantly progressing, that we're constantly moving into who Christ is, that we're not without sufficiency, that we're not without hope and help. And so that's the goal of this series. And tonight we're going to look at probably one of the most difficult topics, and that is the topic of depression. Depression. Let me ask you this evening, how many of you have experienced depression before? If, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you just be honest tonight and just say, I, I've experienced depression. Anybody just, you know, isn't it true? All of us have, right? Every one of us here have experienced some form of depression. Maybe it shows up in a bit of a discouragement, and there are varying degrees of this, right? I mean, depression really does affect of all. Some, you've spoken the words of discouragement and depression. For others, you've, you've felt the heavy heart that depression brings. For, for every one of us, probably at some time, we've 
had a slap of setback or a, a grief of loss or a disheartening effect of stress that takes over our lives. In fact, I would dare say to be human is to feel the numbing, exhausting, demotivating fog of depression. True. We've all experienced that in some form or fashion. Some of us move quickly past it, but we've experienced the, the kind of the form of depression. Maybe, the, maybe not the depths of all depression. I know this is true in my story. I remember uh, my wife Allison going through a postpartum depression after our second son Caleb was born. Uh, he just turned 19 recently, and uh, we looked back in those days, and, and it was dark. It was dreary. There were days where my wife didn't even want to get out of bed. Uh, and i got to tell you, if I'm being honest, there were moments I failed her. Where I need to love her better, and I didn't. And uh, serve her better, and I didn't. I, I want to just be frank with you tonight. I, I've walked through this. Uh, it's kind of crazy to think about that. My natural bend is a positive, upbeat, let's go. Let's conquer the world together. My saying around the staff is let's charge hell with a squirt gun. A squirt gun of the gospel. got to tell you, I've been walking through these health issues. I've had some deep, dark moments, just being honest with you. I uh, found out in January I had a blood clot in my mesenteric region, in my, my stomach region. It's created all sorts of issues. I go to the doctors almost every week and have blood tests uh, every couple weeks and text and scan, I scan this week and just trying to figure out what caused this. And every once in a while I, I feel like I can't even wake up. And i got to tell you, if I'm just being honest with you, there have been days that have been the darkest days of my life as I've journeyed through this. Most people don't know that, right? Because we hide it, don't we? We put on the mask. But if I'm just being raw with you, there have been some deep, dark moments where I just, I'm ready to throw in the towel. I'm ready to say, God, what are you doing? What, why is this happening? Why, why is it in the midst of a good season at Crossroads? Why is it that I feel like I can't enjoy it? And I've struggled with that. I've wrestled with that. And there's been times I've questioned God himself. See, all of us have experienced it. All, all of us have been there before. Yes, we, we dumb it down. Don't we dress it up a little bit? We'll say things, well, it's just a down day. Or we might say, well, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Or maybe today I'm out of sorts or I'm in a funk. But the fact of it is, depression affects us all. Now, when we talk about depression, we know it's more than just merely being sad, isn't it? All of us experience sadness in our lives. But depression is deeper than that. It causes a change that takes place in us. For some, it's a physical change. For others, it's, it's a mental change. And for others, it becomes a medical issue. It, it flies into where medicine is necessary to be able to help us to see clearly and sometimes the wires in our brains don't connect the way they should and it leads to medical realities. This is what depression looks like. Let me, let me give you some realities of how it looks in our culture. Uh, one in four American adults say they experience a mental health issue. Think about, think about that, one in four. Uh, one writer calls depression the common cold of emotional disorders. Uh, a World Health Organization names depression as the second most cause or common cause of medical disability worldwide. It's second only to cardiovascular disease. And it's expected to be number one in the next 10 years. At any given time in the U.S., 30% of all people would consider themselves depressed. Five to 10% of those people are experiencing major depression in their lives. And this is, leads to all sorts of realities we could talk about. We don't have time to, but I don't know if you know this or not, but it has led to the fourth leading cause of death in our country is suicide. Uh, I know in my own world, I've stood by the gravesides of people that have taken their lives. I remember a family with six kids took our life on the church property of the church I pastored in Maryland. Devastating. I had to go to the family, was the first to tell them. I've stood by the graveside of people that have taken their lives of, because of depression. In fact, over 30,000 people in the United States die every single day by suicide. This reality of depression is a real thing. That's a person dying eight, every 18 minutes in the U.S. because they, they don't have anywhere to go, and they take their lives. And then what adds to the burden, if we could just be real, real what adds to the burden, if we're just being honest, is, is then we talk about being Christians. And right, Christians aren't supposed to be depressed. Right, think about it. Isn't it normal that when we think about depression in Christianity, it seems to be the opposite ends, doesn't it? And in the Christian world, what tends to happen is we, we try to give these false fronts, and we try to give what we think is good advice, but in fact, it doesn't help us. So we say things like, well, well you just got to have more joy. You ever heard that before? Well, you, you just, you got to remember to rejoice in the Lord always, or how about this one? You just need to have more faith. 
You need to trust God more in your life. And of course, what happens? This simply pushes the depressed deeper into the hole and teaches that discouragement actually needs to be, needs to be circled and faked by happiness. And so what happens? People begin to put on the mask and you never really see what's going on in their heart. And so they come, they look at the part, but all they're doing is giving in to the cheap, cheap cliches of Christianity in our world. And so what we want to do this evening is we just want to be very honest with this topic. We're not going to look at every answer, but we're going to be honest about this topic because it is the church's dirty little secret, is that many of us in this room, myself included, are or have experienced depression. I want to show you how God is actually closer than you think in the midst of our depressing moments. In the midst of our struggles, God is actually closer than you think. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're in good company if you're depressed. You're in good company. In fact, the Bible speaks of this over and over again. Uh, Moses, in Numbers chapter 11, he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. And this is what he says to God in Numbers 11. He says, I am not able to bear these people alone. Kill me. That's his message to God in Numbers 11. After leading them out of Egypt, heading to the promised land, he says, Lord, take my life. How about Elijah, the prophet, one of the most well-known prophets in Israel's history? He prays in 1 Kings chapter 19, after destroying the prophets of Baal, showing how fire comes down from heaven. And it says because of of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel are chasing him. It says this in 1 Kings 19. It says, oh Lord, they seek to take my life away. Take my life. He says that. He says, Lord, take my life. They're they're seeking to kill me anyway. Just, I'm done. Or I think about Jonah. Remember Jonah, the prophet who ran. We did a series on him uh, there last year. Jonah chapter 4. It says, oh Lord, I beseech you, take my life. Or how about Paul? Paul the apostle, the one who faced storms and and even the demons obeyed him, he healed people and he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, didn't he? Do you know he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8, he says, I despaired even for my life. See, we are in the rank of people that have experienced oppression through the scripture. By the way, there's also historical figures like Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther and pioneer missionary Hudson Taylor, uh, who was a, a missionary to the Chinese. These are all people that experienced depression, and yet God used them greatly. So what do we do? How do we respond in those depressing moments? I want to look at one example tonight of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet. I want to look at kind of four different perspectives of the way we see depression in the prophet of Jeremiah. The first one is this. We see in Jeremiah the cry of depression. If you've ever been depressed, there is a cry that comes out, isn't there? Certainly, if you ever hit your hand with a hammer, there's a cry that comes out. But when there's a hurt in the soul, it comes out in the way we talk. It comes out in the way we pray. It comes out in, in the circumstances of life. We, we react differently. And Jeremiah is a picture of that. There is a cry that we see in Jeremiah the prophet. Now, why is that? A little background about Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied for 50 years specifically to Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah was the home of, of Jerusalem, the capital city. What happened was... Jeremiah was a part of what was called the exile of Babylon. So because of Israel's sin, because Israel had idolatrous moves away from God, God judged Israel, Judah, specifically Judah. Israel had already been taken. Judah, the southern kingdom, God sends Babylon in to take them captive. He sends them in. They plunder. They destroy. They set on fire the city of Jerusalem, including the 400-year-old iconic symbol of the Israel faith and the center of cultural reality in Israel and it was the temple. Babylon comes in, they destroy the temple. They burn it to the ground. They utterly destroy it. And then they begin to move people violently, taking people back to Babylon as captives, as exiles. By the way, you ever read the book of Daniel? He was an exile. He was taken back in those deportations to Babylon. This is the picture that we have here. So this is Babylon. Babylon taking violently people back. Jeremiah, the prophet, however, was left there. He was left in Jerusalem and Judah, and his job was to preach. God led him to preach to the people that were left in exile. So here's what would happen. Is the people that were left thought, well, things are ending. The armies are never coming back. They've already taken all of our people. We're left here, so let's try to rebuild. And Jeremiah goes, no, no, no. Let me give you a true prophecy. God is saying that the worst is yet to come. The worst is not over. Actually, it's going to be even worse. And so Jeremiah's job by the Lord was to declare that they needed to repent because God was still coming to judge them as well. Now imagine imagine having that as a job. 
Imagine having the job to look around at the people that you love who have experienced unspeakable tragedy and you had to say to them, hey, the worst is yet to come. You complain about your job, imagine Jeremiah. And he was called by God to do this. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, you find over and over again a disservice and injustice to Jeremiah. In fact, his own family betrays him on multiple occasions. They attempt to kill him at least on five occasions. They kick him out of the temple so that he's not allowed even on the temple courts after it was destroyed. He wasn't even allowed on the property of the temple. We find him eventually thrown into a muddy, muddy well where he sinks in quicksand up, uh, quicksand up to his armpits, about ready to die before he is rescued, and then he is eventually imprisoned and sent to Babylon in exile. Now, you look at Jeremiah, and you might think, well, of course. But he was a powerful Bible character. Right, Jeremiah probably spoke with a deep, loud voice, thus says the Lord, right? Because that's what we think of Bible characters. But you know, the Bible reveals something different. In fact, I want to read some of the verses from the book of Jeremiah. This is the prophecy of Jeremiah. This is what he speaks. Listen to this, Jeremiah 8.18. My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Jeremiah 10.19. Woe is me, by the way, woe. You ever heard the word oive? That's the word here, oive. It, it means woe to me. Oive means woe unto me, judgment upon me. Woe to me because I'm of my hurt. My wound is grievous. I, I said, truly, this is an affliction. I must bear it. My tent is destroyed. My cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. He says, I'm just dying here. That's what he's saying. He's saying the cords are breaking. They're tearing. Everything's falling apart right around me. I don't know what to do. Just take me out. And then we come to Jeremiah 15. He says, woe is me, my mother, that you even bore me. Now this is I ironic because if you read the beginning of Jeremiah, it says that God chose him before he was ever born to be this prophet. And yet he writes in Jeremiah 15, woe to me, my mother, woe to my mother, that you even bore me, that you even have birth of me. I'm in a strife and contention in the whole land. I have not, not lent nor have I borrowed, yet all of them have cursed me. He says, listen, I've got nothing to offer. Curse my mom for even giving birth to me. You want to talk about depression. You want to talk about discouragement. Jeremiah, through the book of Jeremiah, gives us a picture of the cry of desperation. By the way, this is the way, Jeremiah gives us a picture of the way de depression works. De depression works over a, a continuum. Let me explain what I mean. Depression usually comes by some form of discouragement. Usually you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be depressed. Now, it does happen. It happens when some parts of our brains tend to get disconnected. That's way deeper than I can understand because I don't understand our physics very well. I never took physics in high school, actually. Um, but I know there's a brain up here somewhere. <laughs> or I'm the scarecrow if I only had a brain, right? I came to my mind. <laughs> but it starts with discouragement. Now some, again, there's some connecting. But what happens, discouragement begins. And on the other side of the continuum is depression. And in between, there is a, a, a lot of factors. There's factors like spiritual factors and physical and biological factors and how you were brought up and what you experience in life. And then there's psychological factors, things that happen to us. And, and then there's social factors of being rejected or, or being bullied or all these different things. And they play a part of the continuum between discouragement and depression. In fact, there's not usually one primary contributor to depression. It's, it's interesting because we're made, and I'm going to use a technical term, we're, we're made in what is called psychosomatic unity. I'll explain it. What do I mean? We're not just soul and we're not just body. On this side of eternity, we are both soul and body, meaning when we hurt, we hurt in both places. It affects us both ways. Let me give you one example. You ever been hungry? But you're so hungry... You become hangry? You ever do that? Where you're hungry and you need something to eat, but you're not there to get something to eat yet. And so what do you do? Someone comes to you and you say something in a harsh tone and you didn't mean it. Well, that harsh tone is a soul reality. That's not a good thing, right? There's something wrong with my soul that I would react that way to somebody. I should love them. I should reflect Christ to them. But what happened? My soul responded to something that is physical. When I was hangry, I then responded. That's the picture, right? We're both body and soul. And so until Christ returns or until we die, we are both of these things. And these things respond to each other. They're inevitably affected by the other. 
And so this is the way it looks. It triggers what can exacerbate other things. So you might get discouraged. And then something starts to really begin to change the outlook of life. Right? It could be your marriage is, 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 is a battle. And so all of a sudden, you can begin to feel discouraged and it can flow into depression. It could be a health situation. That's what I'm facing now. And there's some depression that begins to sneak its way in. It could be a chronic illness. It could be a, a loss of a loved one. And it brings this sudden reality and overwhelming feeling. It could be a, a breakup with somebody over an insult. It could be that you're single or single again. And all of a sudden it just brings us in this moment of, of discouragement. It, it could be that something that we hoped would happen didn't happen. A, a job that we would have or that we were passed over for a promotion that we expected to get. It, it could be a sin that continues to come up and we mess up again and again and again. And so it leaves us devastated. And so it leads eventually to depression. Jeremiah here gives us a picture of that cry, right? He saw his city destroyed. He saw his loved ones and friends deported. They were exiles. And and then he looks around and he tries to do what God has called them to do, but everybody's rejecting him. No one listens to him. In fact, there's a, a place in the book of Jeremiah where he prophesies by not saying a word, and so he has to act everything out, basically. There's one moment where he has to wear a yoke in order to show the people they're gonna be under bondage crazy the story the book of jeremiah is a crazy story it's amazing to see what jeremiah put up with and you could imagine the depression that began to set in so what jeremiah did jeremiah wrote for us a book about his depression it's called the book of lamentations it is a book about both the discouragement he felt as a result of the nation but also the experience he had personally as a result of being a prophet of god we see this book of lamentations gives us a picture of really his depression Now, Lamentations is a pretty interesting book, and the reason for that is because it's a part of the poetical books. It's a a book of poetry. Now, why is it a book of poetry? Because there are six chapters in the book of Lamentations. When you read them, there are two chapters at the beginning. Every chapter is 22 verses, and the reason it's 22 verses is because it follows the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, so every verse begins with a different letter. So in Hebrew, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and you go through the entire, uh, the entire alphabet, and it goes down, and then chapter 2 starts, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hebrew letters, and then we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is unique. Why? Because chapter 3 goes like this. It goes not A, B, C, D. It goes A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. So chapter 3 has 66 verses. 22 verses times 3. Because every letter is repeated three times. And the reason for this is to increase the intensity. So chapter 3 becomes the pinnacle, becomes the heartbeat behind what Jeremiah wants us to know about his lament. And laments in the Bible are greatly valuable. They, they, they show pain in life, but then anchor our souls to something that is true. That's why this is so valuable. It anchors our souls to something that is true. So Jeremiah has a cry of uh, 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 the, the, the cause of depression, but now we see the cry of depression in Lamentations chapter 3. We see the cause and now we see the cry. There's a cry that comes as a result of depression. And I want to show it to, show it to you here in chapter 3. And we're going to look at two ways Jeremiah responds. Chapter 3 gives us both of these ways, and then we're going to give the answer. T- take a look with me. Lamentations chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 1. Take a look. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Notice the depression of Jeremiah. We see now the cry, the calls. There's background. There's a city that's been destroyed. There's now people that have rejected him, and now he cries out. There's a cry that he brings, and he says, I feel like the light has been flicked off. I feel like darkness just pervades my life. I don't know if your kids do this. When I read this verse, I I think about uh, whenever we're in the basement playing uh, with the boys and I, uh, my four sons, we'll be in the basement doing something. Whenever it's kind of time for bed or time to go upstairs, especially at night, there's a race as to who's going to turn out the light last, right? You don't want to be that one to get stuck, and so what happens is you race up the steps, and then you turn the light out on everybody else and shut the door, right? 
Your kids, I don't know if your kids do that. My kids do that. And so I'll usually be the first one because I'm smart to say, oh, hey, guys, I'm going to go ahead upstairs. I'll walk up the steps knowing they're down there. I'll flick the lights off, shut the door, and I'll hold it, right? What happens? You ever been like that? If you have brothers and sisters, you probably did that as well. What happens? There's a panic that sets in, isn't there? All of a sudden, especially when the boys were younger and I would do that, all of a sudden, they're like fighting. They're coming up, breathing on the door. Dad, let me out, right? That's the image that Jeremiah gives us. He's experiencing depression, and he says it feels like the light has been taken out, and I don't know where to turn. There's a panic that's stricken his heart. That's the image here. He, he says, man, this light has gone out. The darkness has taken over the light. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do. It's, it seems to be dark over the entire land. This is the picture of this. There is despair in this darkness. There's no light by which to find the way. In fact, skip down to verse 17. I can't, we're not going to read this whole chapter, but skip down to verse 17. It says, my soul is bereft of peace. Uh, bereft means to, to, to kind of leave behind. It's, it's to drop it. It's the idea of just dropping the ball. My, my soul, it's just dropped off peace. There's no peace. I've forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished, so as my hope, so as my hope from the Lord. Here's Jeremiah, and he says, my hope is gone. I've got nowhere to turn. The darkness has overtaken it. I, I don't know what to do. Here's this cry. He's saying, God, where do I turn? My soul has no peace. Now, I find this very ironic, isn't it? That God would put this into the scriptures. I don't know about you, I read this and my thought immediately goes like, man, why would they take a hero of the Bible and say, why would they allow this writing to be in there? And I think it's a reminder to us that God is willing to hear our cries. That God is a God that, that, that understands the depth of what our souls face. He gets it. Christ is the picture that he gets it. Right, he, he came to earth, he experienced, I think of the garden before he went to the cross. Remember the, the agony in the garden. Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, my, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus understood it, and so today we have a God that understands the, the weight of what we experience. God put this in here to, to demonstrate that he understands our cry, that it's okay to express our emotions to God, that he's big enough to handle them. God is big enough to hear those cries. And this is the beauty of a lament, lamentations. The beauty of a lament is that it's honest even if it's not accurate. It's honest even if it doesn't, is not accurate theologically, it's honest. What do I mean? What Jeremiah is saying here is not true. God hasn't escaped him. God has not left him. God, he is not alone. But his human perspective is he is. And God says, you can tell me that. You can speak those words. I hear you. It's not true, but it can be honest even if it's not true. And that's the point. We find in this lament the cry of Jeremiah. Now the cry, I want to skip forward to the end of this chapter. Because remember, this is the pinnacle of this book. And so we skip to the end of chapter 3, and now we see the confidence in depression. This is point 3, the confidence in depression. We see all of a sudden a change take place in this chapter. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 55. Go, go, go there. Skip down to verse 55. It says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my, to my cry for help. And so he says, I cried out to you, and he didn't close your ears. No, you came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my calls, O Lord, and you have redeemed my life. Do you see the change? In the beginning, he's like, it's darkness. I don't know where to turn. I don't know where to go. And by the end of this chapter... He says, God, you have heard my cry, and you have redeemed my life. We all of a sudden find a confidence. Now, what's interesting? Jeremiah's circumstance did not change in a chapter. Jeremiah's circumstance did not leave in chapter 3. This all was still the same circumstance, the same situation, the same heartache, the same depression. So what happened? What would cause him to go from the cry to the confidence. What would cause him to go from weakness to resolution? To say, God, you have redeemed my life. What, what would cause him to do this? We find it right in the middle. Right in the transition of this chapter, we see this, this, this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. So what changed? Take a look at verse 21. We see the change that took place. Notice it says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. 
Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Notice it says, but I recall to mind. We find this word, verse 21, but. And I always like to remind us, right, when we see a but, buts in the Bible are big. And I'm being honest with you, that's my next book. It's called Big Butts of the Bible. It is. Be- because but is a transition word. But means there's something going on here. There's a change happening. And I know that sounds funny, but, but whenever you see the word but or therefore, you should stop and pause in the Bible. Why? Because but is a transition. Something's taking place that's changing something else. I was dead in sin, but God who was rich in mercy made me alive. Right? There's buts. These but transform life. When we understand what the but does, it is transformative. That sounds funny, but it's true. It's true. So notice verse 21, but I've got something my mind can turn to. He says, I call to my mind. I, I, I call out to my mind. I love this word to call out. It literally means to return. I cause my mind to return to some things I know to be true. I cause my mind to realize there's some truth behind the scenes that I'm not seeing right now in this circumstance. And so I call out to my mind, return. Return to what you know. When, when things get cloudy and dark, when things are overwhelming me, I got somewhere to turn. That's what, that's what Jeremiah is saying, is I'm going to remind my mind, I'm going to call out and say, turn away. Look at the truth. Don't look at what's a lie, or, or what may be real inside, but may not be true of what's actually happening behind the scenes. And so what we find is this call, this theological pivot, this, this call in desperation, this call in our depression. In fact, uh, a great Bible Uh, proclaimer, his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, preach to yourselves. He says, this verse, verse 21, is a sense in which the primary task of the scripture is to teach us how to talk to ourselves. I love that. Uh, One of the primary tasks of the Bible is to teach us to talk to ourselves. To say, call to mind. Think about these things. Set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. It's this idea of calling our mind to see something. Now, what does he see? Notice it. Verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have what? Hope. Wait a minute. The circumstances haven't changed. The situation hasn't changed. But all of a sudden, he says, I have hope. What seemed to be hopeless, nothing changed, nothing turned. All of a sudden, he is filled with hope. He calls his mind to see. Oh, by the way, this is only the second time the word hope comes up in the book of Lamentations. It is only the first time it comes up in a positive sense. Before, it's hopelessness. And now he says, but I have hope. Therefore, I have hope. Why? Because hope doesn't come from a circumstance. Hope doesn't come from how I feel. Hope doesn't come from what I may be experiencing. Hope comes from what I believe to be true. Hope settles itself on what is true and right. If you put your life in something that you, you put your hope in something, your life in something that isn't true, it dies, right? It's hopeless. It won't last. It won't stand. But when you put your, yourself and your hope in something that does stand in truth, all of a sudden it changes everything. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we view the circumstances. It, it, it's the roller coaster effect. I don't know if you like to ride roller coasters. I do. As I'm getting older, I, there's a little bit of me that's slowly fading from them. But I have four boys, and so I will endure them to prove that I'm still the man. You ever get on a roller coaster, and you, it's scary. And in your mind, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you think, well, they wouldn't have this ride here if they didn't approve it. These seat belts must be able to fasten, and they won't open. Otherwise, I'm going to die. These things, this has to be true. This, this is safe. They've inspected it, right? You ever done that on a roller coaster? They've inspected it. They've approved it. It's been passed, and... It's why when I go to another country, I never get on a roller coaster. I don't trust it, right? We have, we have authorities and we have expectors. We trust the engineers, right? And so that's the image here is, is okay, what happens when life is falling apart, when depression takes over? Where do I turn? Where does my hope lie? What lies in what is true? I say, wait a minute. I, I know some things that are true. I can turn my mind to these things. So I want to give you, in this text, four heart-changing truths that will give us hope even in the midst of depression, even in the midst of discouragement. Number one, God's mercy never ends. God's mercy never ends. Notice what he says, therefore I have hope. Why? He tells us. Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. He says, listen, God's mercy never ends. In fact, I love the image here because God understands that every day will bring a new burden. Every day will bring a new voice. Every day will bring a new perspective. Every day will bring a new burden. Every day there will be a voice that says, you should be discouraged. And so what does he say here? No, your mercies are new every morning. The word they're new isn't that they're new, that we've never seen them. It's the word fresh. Fresh. The mercies of God are fresh every morning. They're, they're, they're renewed in us. Why? Because his faithfulness is there today, in this moment. It'll be there tomorrow. It'll be when we wake up. God's faithfulness doesn't change. It's constant. In fact, I love the word faithfulness here. If you want to learn a great Hebrew word, it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's the word faithfulness. It's the word chesed in Greek. I'm a Hebrew. Let's say that together. Chesed. Let's say it. One, two, three. Chesed. It's the loyal covenant love of God. It's the love that only God can have for us. We, you and I really don't have chesed love. And by the way, if you didn't spit on the back of the head of the person in front of you, you didn't say it rightly. The word chesed literally is the faithful covenant love of God. It's only what God can have for us because we can't have chesed. We can talk about it, but we really don't have it because we fail in our promises. But God loves us so much, he keeps his promises. So it says that his faithfulness, his chesed, his loyal love never ends. It's constantly, every day. It causes Jeremiah to say, he's my portion. He is my portion. He is the prize that I get in victory even though I feel I've defeated he is the portion, even though I'm experiencing the burden of today, he is the portion I grab to as if victory has been won. Secondly, not only do we see that God's mercy never ends, secondly, we see that waste, waiting is not wasted. Waiting is not a waste. Take a look at what he says next. Go to verse 25. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Waiting is not a waste. He says, you know what? It's good that we wait. It feels like we're waiting for God to deliver us from the depression, from the discouragement. But in that moment, we then grab onto God. And so he says here, waiting is actually isn't wasteful. God uses it. Now, this is powerful. Don't miss this. From verse, uh, and I, this is kind of the picture of this, of this verse. As we, as we look at this, from Verse 25 to verse 27, notice it. Every phrase in Hebrew begins with the word good. Good. Remember, there are three verses that are repeating the same letter. This is the word good here. It's good. 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 And so if we read it again, verse 25, good is the Lord for those who wait for him. It is good that one should wait quietly. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke. Notice the repetition of the word good. Why? Because waiting actually is valuable for us. We want the instant answer. We want the instant out. But waiting is actually the process where God does his work. In the waiting moments when we cry out to God, God is at work deep in our souls. And that work we can trust will end in good. We have to trust him. By the way, that's where faith is forged in the waiting, isn't it? We go on. Thirdly, we find in verses 31 and 32, the final word is yet to be spoken. The final word is yet to be spoken. Take a look at verse 31. It says, for the Lord will not cast off forever. So here's Jeremiah, and he says, it feels like God just cast me aside. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he calls grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, Jeremiah reminds himself that the final word is yet to come. There is a day where God will have the final word. But this is not that moment. This is, this is not that moment yet. Where God has the final word. God is not finished with Jeremiah. And so he says, there's a final day yet coming. In our depression, in our discouragement, in whatever spectrum of the continuum we're on, we can be sure that there will be a day God has the final word. That's what it's saying there. The Lord, the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he calls grief, he will have compassion. There is a day where he will have the final word over, over the depth of the fallenness of our souls. Because that's where depression ultimately comes from, right? It's the fallen world that we live in. The discouragement that we have is all because of sin. The sin that, that has entangled our world, and so we experience the weight of the fall. And not just personal sin, but the, the, the effect of sin in general, but also personally. We're fallen creatures, so we experience the depression. And so he reminds us that there will be a word yet given. There will be a word yet spoken where this will be cast aside, and so we can trust God in the midst of it. The final word has not yet come, but it will. 
In fact, I always remind people the reason why God hasn't spoken the final word is because God is being gracious. Because the moment he undoes and, do, and the moment he speaks the final word and undoes the world is the moment he undoes all of us. And so God in his grace and mercy still doesn't come. It still doesn't answer. Why? Because he's gracious. He wants to bring more to himself. Because he knows to undo injustice, to undo pain, is to undo people. And God at a heart of love tarries, waits, doesn't come yet, doesn't rescue. The final word has not yet come. And then lastly, God is always good. Now this seems to be repetition, right? God is always good. Many of us, when we think about the moment of discouragement and depression, our instinct is to say, God seems to get glory and happiness out of bringing pain to people. Almost like God is up there saying, serves them right. But can I tell you something? He doesn't enjoy watching the struggle of our tears. It, it, what it's producing, what he's trying to produce in us is something good, right? Take a look at verse 33. It says, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God's purpose is not to grieve us. God's purpose is not for us to say, God, you're trying to just, just judge us and you're bringing us what we deserve. Yes, God will judge. But his point in we who know him is that he's building something good. Jeremiah here is feeling the weight of this and he's saying, but God, you're not judging me without, you're, you're, not, you're not punishing me. You, you're not disciplining me without a purpose. And that purpose will be good in the end. So you, you package it together. There is good yet coming. That God takes delight in working good even in the midst of difficulty. By the way, this is seen in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages of all time. Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Notice that verse in verse 28. It says, we know that all things work together for good. But notice how we know it. To those who love God, and who are called according to his purpose. And then he says, this is what it looks like to be called according to his purpose. It's we have been, been predestined. And he tells us what we have been predestined to. Everybody's like, predestined, that's a scary word. No, we're predestined. Notice the direction. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You know what that means? Don't miss this. That means even my depression, even my discouragement, even where I'm on the continuum of whatever that looks like, physiologically, socially, whatever I'm experiencing, God is working his plan to make me more like Jesus Christ. I am predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus. And he repeats it by saying, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, those who are in Christ, they will one day be glorified. There is a day where this went. And in the midst of it, God is using even our pain that he did not cause, but he certainly allows to work for us the way to glory, to stir in us what we could never be without him, redeemed, like Christ, glorified. Listen, tonight your emotions may be telling you that there's nothing but darkness and despair, but if Christ rose from the grave, and if Romans 8 is true, then what? God has a plan. God has a plan, and ultimately that story ends in the fact that I'm glorified. It, it ends with me conformed to the image of Jesus. And so for you, let me ask you, has suffering or judgment gotten the best of you today? Has, have you spent the last week listening and rehearsing the wrong conversation, the wrong narrative in your head, these whispers that keep coming? Is this a moment you have to preach to yourself? Look at the words of Jeremiah and say, hope springs forth from truth that I remember. Hope springs forth when I fill my mind with truth about what God is doing, that what God has done, that, that his mercy never ends, that his waiting is never in waste, that the final word is, is, has not yet been spoken, it will one day, but it hasn't yet, he's not done, and that God is always working his good. He's faithful, he is good. Hope finds itself in truth. I want to stand by listening to this song, and we're going to end by singing it together. It calls us to remember that God is a mighty God, that he's at work in our lives. Whatever we're facing, whatever depression may, may seem to have gripped our souls, 
there is hope. That depression is not the end. That we have a God we can trust. We can call to our minds to say, in the midst of this, God, I trust in you. I trust in you. Let's listen to this song together. What a mighty God we serve. 
You don't have to look any farther than the cross to know how mighty God is. You don't have to look any farther than the, the empty tomb that he would come and die and rise again so that we could have not only, not only hope, but help. That we could have an answer to those moments where we don't know where to turn, that he's there. If you could go to the cross for us, he's there right now in our lives. And maybe you're here this evening, and, and, and maybe you're not sure if you're called in, if you, you've been brought into the family of God. You, your faith is maybe wavering. You don't know Christ. You not, would not profess Christ tonight. We want to encourage you. Uh, we have a, a, an area called Next Steps to the right as you leave. There are some people there who would love to pray with you. They'd love to talk with you about how you can know for certain that you can have Jesus Christ tonight, that you can have your life changed from the inside, that you can become a new creation. Old things pass. Behold, things new. There are many of us, you know Christ, and Maybe tonight you're walking through some depression, some discouragement, and, and we've got actually on our, on our, on our team here and part of our communities, we have a group called a mental health group, and one of the things that we use them for is to help us understand how to talk about issues that are, that are just encompassing our world all the more. They're teaching us greatly, and these are professionals, these are people that work with other people, and so out as you leave, right behind uh, the doors there, there's a, there's a table, and that table has information. And we want to encourage you, we're safe here. I, I, I just, I already admitted to you, I'm struggling with that. I'm walking through that journey right now. and So we have some information just to help you, some people that would love to help you, to talk with you. There is not only hope, but there is help. And we as a church want to be a part of helping you. Would you bow with me as we pray tonight? God, I want to thank you. Lord, in the darkest moments, you're there. When it, when it seems emptiness just pervades our souls, when it seems the light has gone out and there's darkness, God, you're there. You're there and you're at work. You're at work, and our waiting is not a waste. Lord, your mercies are new every morning, every day. They're fresh. They're real. They're at work. And you are good. You are good all the time. In those darkest moments, you're still good. In those moments we question, you're still faithful. In the moments we wonder, is life worth it? God, we wait. And one day you will have the final word. You will speak it. Depression will be done. Discouragement will be gone. Life will be perfected with you. So God, thank you that you work all things together for good of those who love you. And that all things that you're working together for good, the good is that we become more like Jesus Christ. That in the end, we who are justified will one day be glorified. And so God, do that work in us. And Lord, even in pain, show that work in us and through us. Offer your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. The high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Who understands the depths of our cries. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this evening. Love you guys. God bless. May we go in hope.